0: Please take your Bibles and turn to Romans 5. It's been at least a handful of weeks before uh, we were in Romans 5, but I'm not going to give a great... Um, review here of what we've seen so far. I will read verses 1 through 11. I'll just mention in light of our adult Bible class that in that class we started in the dust, in a sense, and then we moved to heaven. Uh, Dr. McIntosh used the doctrines of creation and the flood and death to show how they all point toward the gospel and toward the cross and the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have the blessing of starting right there with the cross and Christ's justifying and reconciling work uh, this morning. So may the Lord bless the things we read and hear from this passage. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith... because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, that in while we were still sinners... Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So we stop there, and our focus of attention will be verses 9 to 11. Uh, I think it was the first text that we looked up and read in the Sunday school class, was verse 12, the very next verse. So maybe if I can talk Dr. McIntosh into hanging around for another week then uh, he can have this pulpit next Sunday morning. All right, well, before we come to our message today from Romans 5, let's ask the Lord's help once again in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the wonderful things we've already heard from it today in our Bible class, and ask that now you would also... Open up your word to us that we might behold wondrous things out of it again, things having to do with salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ because of your love which has now in Christ and through the gospel been shed abroad in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Come and use this word. We heard this morning that it is powerful. It is a creating word. Create life in the souls of unbelievers this morning and stir us up, your people, to greater joy, greater hope, greater love for you because of the gospel of your Son. And we ask this all in his name. Amen. Amen. One commentary I've... I have been reading for my messages on Romans, and I've mentioned this back when I began, I think, uh, or one of my first couple of messages on Romans chapter 5. One of the commentators entitled the whole section from chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 8, verse 39, so chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. He entitled these four chapters, The Life Promised for Those who are righteous by faith, or we could say it in the language also of Romans, those who are justified by faith in Christ. And this writer said that, uh, in a sense, these four chapters are an exposition of the statement in chapter 1, verse 17, which is an Old Testament quote, that the righteous shall live by faith. So this is the life promised For those who are righteous by faith. Chapters 5 through 8 tell us all about that life. And in chapter 5, what it tells us, according to this um, commentator, is that the life of faith, the Christian life, is a life characterized by peace with God. That note is sounded right at the beginning. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we saw how that. Peace with God leads us in these early verses of this chapter to hope, confidence of what is yet to come, hope in the glory of God that we will one day see God face to face and we will be with him forever in glory. And that hope in our souls along with the peace in our souls leads us to rejoicing or glorying or boasting even as this word can be translated that Paul uses here In Romans 5. And then he says that that glorying or that boasting uh, in verses 5 through 8 is further fueled by the love of God. And that love, he says in verse 5, has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the Christian has many reasons and very weighty reasons for boasting or glorying or rejoicing, as we've already seen. Well, today, as we fix our attention on verses 9 through 11, we're going to see that there are even further grounds for boasting or for glorying or for rejoicing. That's what we have in verses 9 to 11. And we'll break it down this way. We'll first cover verses 9 and 10, and then separately verse 11. So first of all, the heading I've given for verses 9 and 10 is this. We will certainly, certainly be saved in the end. And in my notes, and my heading in my notes, has the word certainly twice. So I didn't stutter, nor did I just say it for the sake of repetition. But in a way I did, because that's what I put in my notes. We will certainly certainly be saved in the end let's read verses 9 and 10 again to see how that's the point being made here after he mentions in the last part of verse 8 that christ died for us while we were still sinners paul goes on and says much more than having now been justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him for if we were, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So, we will certainly, certainly be saved in the end. This is the point Paul is making. The certainty of the final salvation of every believer is, in Jesus Christ. So let's notice how he emphasizes the certainty. Let's say you're a Christian sitting here, I know many of you are, this morning. Let's see how Paul emphasizes the certainty of your final salvation. First of all, he does it, and, and I should say this, first what we're going to do is look at the way he does this in both of these verses together, in verse 9 and verse 10. And then we'll look at it Uh, separately how uh, paul makes his statement in each verse so first of all the first way he does this in both verses what i'm saying here is true of both of these verses he uses an a fortiori or a fortiori argument that's a latin phrase it just means an argument from the lesser to the greater and he does it to emphasize how certain something is if if A is certain, then how much more is B certain to happen? That's an argument from the lesser to greater. Sometimes they say from greater to lesser. But um, this is what the kind of argument it is. And, And what is Paul trying to emphasize to us that is certain? Well, he's trying to emphasize that believers, if they're believers now, they will be saved in the end. They won't be picked up by God, in a sense, in conversion, and then dropped some way between there and glory, between the time they came to Christ and the time when Christ comes again. That won't happen. It is certain that every true believer now will be a believer in the end and will be saved in the end. The end. Notice the ends of verses nine and ten. The last parts of the, ver- of the verse starts out in verse nine much more than we shall be saved from wrath through him. Wrath is something that comes on the last day. We'll look at this a little bit more closely later, but that's the point. If you're a believer today, then you will be saved from God's wrath you will never go to hell you won't be sent there on the last day you have the same thing in verse 10 it says if we when we were enemies we were reconciled to god much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life and once again that's pointing to the end when all believers are raised from the dead when it says saved by his life, we'll look at this more closely, that's referring to Christ's resurrection. And so we're saved by his life, coming back from the dead, means if we're believers in Christ, even if we're laid in the ground someday in a grave, someday we'll come out of it. So that's what it's saying there. It's an a fortiori argument, an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's saying that, We start out with something that's less likely to happen. In verse 9, it's being justified by his blood. And then you go to something that's much, much more likely to happen, will be saved from wrath through him. Similarly, verse 10, the less likely thing is that we be reconciled to God. Why is that less likely? Well, Paul says because it happened when we were enemies of God. Now we're friends, so it's much more likely to happen in the end. On the last day, we'll be saved by his life. It's kind of like this. Let's say you had, um, maybe there is such an event, so I don't necessarily make it up, but I don't don't know for a fact. But let's say there's something called the World Wrist Wrestling Championships. That's what they call it because they lock wrists, but it's really arm wrestling. That's what most of us pedestrians call it. And imagine that in this World Wrist Wrestling Championship, the man who wins the heavyweight class throughout the whole tournament, he beat every single opponent that he faced. Well, we could use an a fortiori argument if the winner of the 100-pound class said, I think I can beat the heavyweight champ. Well, we would use an a fortiori argument with him. We would say something like this to him. Look, you see those 280 pound guys up to about 400 pounds, most of whom are really sculpted and rock-like? He beat every one of those guys. Much more is he going to beat you with your whatever circumference bicep you have 12 inches or whatever it might be for a hundred pounder maybe only eight i don't know but you get the idea if he beat that guy those guys much more is he going to beat you that's an a fortiori argument we see them used in scripture in many places let's just go back to matthew to look at a couple of them matthew 6 verse 30 matthew 6 and verse 30 Here we have Jesus telling us that we shouldn't worry about our life, what we'll eat, what we'll wear, and so on. And he says in Matthew 6, 30, Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, look at the beauty in a field with wildflowers in it. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? In other words, look how beautifully God arrays the field. What is grass to God? But he clothes that beautifully. So why should you, as a human being made in God's image, and more than that, a believer in his son, one of his friends, Why would He not clothe you in an even greater way? Don't worry. Or similarly, Matthew 10, verses 28 to 31. There's another one of these arguments, from the lesser to the greater. God does the less likely thing. For sure, He will do the more likely. Don't worry about it. Verse 28 of Matthew 10. He's instructing the apostles before they go out to preach. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. In other words, it's not all that likely, from a logical standpoint anyway, that God would be so concerned about the birds of the air. Sparrows, little ones. But he is. So it seems not very likely that he would be concerned about them. Well, now think of it. He is concerned about them. So why are you, again, one of God's creatures made in his image... And a child of his through the death of his son. Why are you thinking that God is not going to be even more concerned about you? An argument from the lesser to the greater. And here in Romans 5, in this argument from the lesser to the greater, the contrast is even greater than it is when we think about people compared to the grass of the field or God's creatures, um, that are human compared to little sparrows, it's greater because grass and sparrows are at least morally neutral. But before God saved us, saved you if you're a Christian, you were ungodly. You were alienated from God. You were rebels against Him and His grace and His truth. And his law, as it says in verse 8 there, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see how that leads right into this argument from the lesser to greater. Now if he did that, when you were wicked, how much more will he save you now that you're his own? So he emphasizes the certainty of your final salvation if you're a christian first by using this argument from the lesser to the greater secondly he uses repetition as i've already stated he's making the same point in each one of these two verses let me read verse nine again you'll see that this is one of these arguments from the lesser to the greater much more than Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies... So that's verse 9. Let me me back up. We We will be saved from wrath through Him in the last day. There's the first argument from the lesser to the greater. It's certain to happen. But for emphasis, so that we get this, He gives us just another a fortiori argument, an argument from the lesser to the greater. And he changes up the words, the details a little bit, but it's essentially the same thing. Verse 10, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So it's kind of like this. If we can... um, put it in terms uh, of a a human illustration, if you will. Let's imagine there's three guys sitting around and talking. And in the first part of it, they, they have this conversation, and all three of these guys are unconverted. And someone has started reading the Bible among them, and they've started talking about it among themselves. And they're starting to see about this idea of salvation through Christ and all this. And so one of them says, You think God would take us into heaven? And another one answers, No way. The other one says, Yeah, not with our attitudes. The one who asked the question says, No, you're right. Not with our ungodly lives. It's never going to happen. But then in the course of time, they continue their conversations, and God saves one, and he saves another, and he saves the other. So they're sitting around talking. This time, they're all converted. One of them, who maybe just doesn't have his doctrine all down yet, he's a little bit ignorant of some things that the gospel teaches. Um, Maybe he has some struggles with assurance. So he says to the men, you think God will take us into heaven at the last day? You think he will? And the answer comes, absolutely he will. Of course he will. We're reconciled now to him. We're washed in the blood of his son. We're His children now. We're His family now. He's not going to drop us now. He's promised, since we're Christians, to save us forever. He's invested in us. His own name is at stake. If He supposedly saves us now, but then drops us. He's made a covenant with us. Jesus Christ, His Son, has given His life to save us. He has said, He will never leave us nor forsake us. We sang that, didn't we, in that beautiful hymn just before the preaching of the Word this morning. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Amen. And that's why Paul emphasized these things the way he did. So that's my first point, verses 9 and 10. Under, under verses 9 and 10. Now, verse 9 and 10 is, makes the point, we will certainly, certainly be saved in the end. First, we notice that by looking at the way he emphasizes that in both of these verses together. Now secondly, let's look more closely at each verse separately. Verse 9 and then verse 10. There's a lot of meat in here, but I'm going to do my best to not um, uh, chew it for too long. So, let's look first at verse 9. Verse 9 says, Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. There's a sense in which I just say, Everything you can remember that we've seen already in the book of Romans, in a way it's all packed in here. So I'll just try to uh, give you some gentle reminders of things. But remember how it is. We have an a fortiori argument. There's something that he starts. Paul starts out with something that is less likely to happen. It's relatively unlikely, from a human standpoint anyway, that a sinner would be justified through the blood of God's Son. Because that's what we were told back in verse 8. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't don't respond to that by saying, well, of course He would. No, you don't get the idea. The idea that He died for us while we were sinners is we were unlovely. There was nothing in us that would provoke Him or move Him to send His Son to die for us. So when you hear that God does that, He does justify sinners, gives them a righteous standing with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ through His blood. That means through His death. And that's the emphasis here is that this is how that happened. Christ died and it secured the salvation of every one of His people. And those people then in the course of their life come to faith by the work of the Holy Spirit. They are justified by the blood of Christ. Now remember, faith is just an open hand. It's the way we take hold of what Christ did. But what Christ did is what earned salvation for anyone who is ever saved. And that's what Paul is saying here. His death is what saved us. That's what really brought us to be justified. That's what made it happen. That is the ground of our salvation. Your faith is not the ground of your salvation. What a shaky ground if it's dependent on you and how well you believe. It's Christ's death. But the less likely thing then is, as Paul states here, that God would ever justify the ungodly and do it by the blood of His Son. But He did it! amazing love how can it be that's how we should reply or respond but now we move to the more likely thing the unlikely thing is that a sinner would be justified by the blood of the son of god but here's the more likely thing how much more then shall we be saved from wrath through him In other words, the more likely thing is that after you've been justified, after you're a believer in Christ, you will be saved from wrath. And as I said, it points to the end times. It points to the day when Christ will come again. If you just look over at chapter 2 and verse 5, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about salvation in the final day. Notice chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, he's talking to unbelievers who might be reading what he wrote, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. This is the judgment of the last day eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. He's pointing forward to the day of wrath, the day of the second coming of Jesus, and he says if you're a Christian now, you will never experience wrath in the last day, period. And it's very, very certain that that is the case. You won't experience wrath. And so, that's the more likely thing. Why is it more likely that that will happen than the fact that a sinner would be justified by Christ's blood? For this reason. Because we're now justified. That's Paul's point. Now that you're justified, your salvation is very, very secure. If I could use a very, um, I don't know, um, I can't think of a better word right now than vulgar, but I just mean in the sense that just a common illustration that doesn't rise up to the level of gospel realities. But let's put it this way. A man says to you, Look, I, I, here's, my, here's my dog. Um, you're going to keep him? You say? And he says, Well, I found him a few weeks ago. He was filthy. He was hungry. He was hurt. He was sick. He was emaciated. I took him home. I bathed him. Cleaned his wounds. Fed him. Took him to the vet. I nursed him back to health. Now? Do you think after all that, I'm not going to let him stay as my pet? In other words, I did the hard work already. Now I'm going to enjoy a companion in my house. You see it? How much more am I going to keep him now that I brought him to this present state? And that's what Paul is saying. Now that you're justified, certainly God is going to do everything it takes to bring you to glory. It's an easier thing. He's looking at you as a justified person, not an ungodly wretch. And then you have the similar thing in verse 10. Verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So again, we start out with a less likely thing. We were enemies, Paul says. Because of sin, and here's what Paul's saying, because of sin, we all came into this world as God's enemies. Now, In Colossians 1, verse 20, verse 21, it says we were alienated from God and enemies in our minds. In other words, there was antipathy on our part toward God. And there was um, opposition from us toward God. Now that's true, but that's not the point here. The point here is because of our sin... There is anger on God's part toward us as unbelievers. And we saw that in Romans 1. That's the way every unbeliever comes into this world. Not a friend of God. No. Not neutral toward God as if he would wait till you do something either good or evil and then either like you or hate you. It says that the wrath of God in Romans 1 is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. That's God's disposition toward us. So it's talking here about God's wrath toward sinners, not sinners toward God. And it's saying here that we needed to be reconciled to God. Now, if you're a Christian, that's what happened. You who were far away, to use one scripture analogy, were brought near by the blood of Christ. You were were enemies, not just because you hated God, but because God's wrath was toward you as an unbeliever. You were reconciled to Him. And remember what we saw when we looked at the doctrine of propitiation in Romans 3.25. That means God, who had anger toward you, had that anger, that wrath, pacified by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that now... There are no billows of wrath coming against you. No clouds of wrath hanging over your head every day that are set to burst upon you in the day of judgment with you being sent to hell and perishing there and suffering there forever. Why? Because you've been reconciled to God, as it says here, by the death of His Son. So you see the parallel. We're justified by the blood Reconciled by his death. The blood means the death. We're saved from wrath. And that has happened as a result of the death of Jesus Christ. Remember Romans 8:1: there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Or to go back to chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've been reconciled. All of that about the righteousness of Christ being given to us. That's justification and reconciliation. All of that is in the text. Another text that was mentioned in the adult class. uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. I leave it to you to look it up and read it and meditate on it on your own and and paul is making the point here brethren paul is making the point that the more likely thing to happen now now that we've been reconciled it's far more likely to happen because as we've already seen it's a free gift look at verse 11 and not only that But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We didn't earn it. It was given to us. It's all by grace. All by grace. That's the gospel. We have received it. We have received the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. So why is it easier? Why is it a more likely thing? Because we are now reconciled to God by the death of Jesus Christ. I mean, what is that to God to save somebody that's already his friend? Of course he's going to save you. Of course he's going to bring you safely to the end at the last day. Of course he's going to hide you from his wrath in the cleft in the rock of his son Jesus Christ. And Paul even gives us another reason in verse 10 where he says at the end, he says, we shall be saved by his life. He's talking about the resurrection. Think again of another passage, so interesting, another passage we had in the adult class. It was 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and following about the resurrection. And, and, and the point that that makes, and this is the point Paul is making here. If Christ died for someone, he also rose for them. Think of... The last verse of chapter 4, verse 25. He was delivered up because of our offenses. There's his death. He was raised because of our justification. Both his death and his resurrection guarantee our final salvation. That's what Paul is saying here. He's justified us. He'll certainly save us in the end. And so the language of verse 10 is, we shall be saved by his life. 1 Corinthians 15 makes the point that Christ is the first fruits and everyone that is in him. If you're in him now, you were in him when he was raised from the grave, and you will be in him on the day of judgment when he raises up everyone from their grave. So, just the conclusion then to these first two verses is this. Salvation, final salvation for everyone who believes in Jesus is certain. It is absolutely certain. Think of the doctrines of grace that emphasize to us that it's all about Christ. Salvation is all about God's work, not yours, not mine. All the doctrines of grace combine to make that point, don't they? It is God alone who saves. You can't save yourself. God does save you in Christ. It's all of Him. Like we sang, what more can He say than to you He has said? And you might object in your bad days and say, Oh, but I'm so sinful. I'm so weak. I'm so unreliable. Excuse me. It's not about you. It's about God. In the work he has done in Christ, the truth is not that justification only is all of God, but all of salvation is of him from day one when you first believed through every day of every trial you've ever gone through or ever will go through until that final day. How much of your help is needed by God to save you? None. So we will certainly, certainly be saved in the end. The last point, verse 11, the second main point is this, and it's very brief comparatively. We rejoice greatly greatly today. That's verse 11. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So in verses 9 to 11, it changed the focus from our justification to the final day, right? We'll be saved in the end, is the burden of those two verses. And that's continued in verse 11. And now Paul just wants to carry it a bit farther here. He says, And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So we rejoice. Already Paul has noticed this. He pointed it out. Um, Verses 1 and following. He started out with the reconciliation, the justification, right? And he says that's grounds for rejoicing. Verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Well, now Paul comes back to this idea of rejoicing again, but now he's factored in this element of our salvation in the last day. Not just our justification, not just our reconciliation that happened on the day we were converted, as we began to experience it and partake of it. He factors in what's going to happen on the last day. And so, uh, that's involved here. And then re- notice this other thing. When he talks about rejoicing here, he's still talking about the way we rejoice today because we know we will be saved then. All right? You see that? His emphasis is, if you're a Christian, you will be certainly saved then. His emphasis is not, think of how much you'll rejoice then. His emphasis is, we rejoice now when we contemplate that. Notice the language of verse 11. And not only that will we be saved on that day, but we also rejoice, and the rejoice is present tense. We rejoice as we think about that certain salvation on that day through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we have two things going for us as Christians that should cause us to greatly rejoice. We've been reconciled to God and our final salvation is therefore absolutely certain. So now, practical application. And we could say, that what we have here is a very nice proof text for eternal security or perseverance of the saints, the pea and tulip, or the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. But I think Paul had a much higher goal than just to give us a proof text for that very great and wonderful and important truth. I think he had a greater goal. Turn over to Romans 8 with me for a moment. Romans 8, verses 34 to uh, to 36. I think Paul is doing something here very similar to what he does there. We'll get there in a while. Here's what we read, just breaking into the context. Who is he who condemns it is Christ who died. In other words, a believer is thinking, they might answer the question to Paul, uh, who is he who condemns, Paul says. And Paul's argument is, there is nobody condemns if you think about the gospel in the right light and so on. If you're a Christian, who is there who condemns? And some people actually have answers for Paul. Like, well, the, the, the accuser of the brethren does and he's constantly doing it to me. And my own heart does all the time. But Paul... Just says, Who is he who condemns? Rhetorical question. Nobody, he's saying. And here's why he says this It is Christ who died, and furthermore, is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So because of Christ, not only Christ's death and then the resurrection, he adds another thing, his present intercession. But see his goal, his final point here, verse 35. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword... As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. In other words, Paul's saying, I know there are things in the Christian life. I'm a Christian, he's saying. I'm an apostle. I know there are things that threaten our confidence and our hope. I know there are things that shake our hope. I know there are things that get us down in the dump.'" Here are my things. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. He can apply the uh, psalm to himself, Psalm forty-four, twenty-two. For your sake, Lord, we are killed all the day long. He faced death many times. He said, I know there are things that threaten our confidence. But his point is, there's nothing that can take it away. There's nothing that can... Um, um, bring it to an end, wipe it out. He gives us this text here, brethren, these three verses, because he wants us to understand more of the love of God in Christ for us. Go back in chapter 5 to verse 5 once again. He says, Now hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. So God has poured his love in our hearts. And Paul is saying that that's a we looked at it already, that's a reason we rejoice as Christians. Because God poured his love into our hearts and it stays there. If you're a Christian, it's never taken away. And so Paul wants us in this text. In a sense, as he says in in, uh, Ephesians 3, to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height and to know, including to feel, we could say, the love of Christ which passes knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God so that we will rejoice. And even rejoice, as it says back in... um, earlier in this passage that we glory even in tribulations verse 3 that's what he wants he wants us to know to quote hebrews 6:19 this hope that we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast and which enters the presence behind the veil in other words he wants you to know the gospel He wants you to know the doctrines of grace. All all the five points. He wants you to know those things because they're taught in the Bible. He wants you to know about justification, reconciliation, forgiveness. And then he wants you to know about the resurrection and the certainty of salvation of everyone who knows Jesus Christ. And he wants you to know that because he knows that this will keep and strengthen and sustain you through all your trials, all your tribulations, and all of your afflictions. It will sustain you through the battle with sin. Don't just say to yourself when you're doing battle against sin, brethren, how terrible you are, how terrible a Christian you are if you even are a Christian. I mean, it's true. But I'm saying, don't just say that. And how, how, how terrible I am, and how, I, how could I be a Christian if I live like this and act like this? Paul is saying, say this to yourself also. He drew me out of the pit of sin. There's no way He's going to leave me now. That's the argument here. He loved me when I was in the far country. He loved me when I was a prodigal. He doesn't love me any less while I'm living in his house. Or when you experience your weakness... Sometimes we wish we were better, we wish we were more godly. We wish, we wish we would retain more of the things our parents taught us if we grew up in a Christian home and the things we hear in sermons. Why am I so dense? Because a week later, I could have used that truth, and I plumb forgot I even heard it. And just we're all a mass of weakness. We wish we weren't. But when you're facing your weakness and the trials that come in the midst of it, and because of it even, say things like this to yourself, brethren, in light of this passage. There is a glorious day coming. And on that day, I am going to be raised from the dead. And my body that will be sown one day in weakness when I'm buried, and is already in great weakness will be raised in power. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. And it should keep us through the disappointments of our lives. We have many things that make us cry. As I'm getting old, and as I've been a pastor for a long time, and had gone through things with other people that... Um, have led me to cry with them. I find I cry a lot more easily. And you cry at disappointments. So say things like this to yourself, brethren, not just, what a sad life this is. Woe is me. Say things like this. The day is coming when God will wipe every tear away from our eyes. Or through the weariness of life. Think things like this. Jesus got weary. Jesus was tempted in all points as we are. So He can sympathize with us. And He can help us when we're tempted. Even by the length of the trial. We're His disciples. We're His brethren. We're His friends. He's going to take us through it. He's going to carry us. Like God said about the Israelites in the Old Testament, all in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. Why should you think you're going to make it to the end, you weakling, you sinner? Why? You can't even walk on your own. That's right. But just like he carried them, he will carry you. Why did he carry them? Because they were his people. And you, believer, are his people. And say this to yourself, like Paul says later in Romans chapter 13, my salvation is nearer today than when I first believed. And say this when you talk about salvation. It is my salvation because I believe in my Savior. And because God, having begun a good work in me, will complete it in me. And through your illnesses, we have ill people in our church. We always will. You think to yourself, Jesus saved so many sick people. This is the worst trial I've ever endured. But Jesus will treat me with the same tenderness and the same kindness with which he treated that woman with the 12 years of internal bleeding. He'll bring me home. Or if your affliction is you have these overwhelming responsibilities that sometimes seem they're going to crush you, whatever it is, as you go through discouragement, you say, Not just, this is why I'm so downcast. How about start from a gospel perspective, brethren. How can I be downcast? I have the down payment. I'm getting the glory. Why am I belaboring the point? Because I really want everyone To be encouraged by this text. I mean, as I struggled, what am I preaching here? This is so basic. But this is Paul's point. He wanted his readers to be encouraged. I want you all to be encouraged, no matter what discouragements you have in your life. Paul took the doctrine of the cross, he took the doctrine of free justification. And then by logic, if I can say it this way, he took it a step farther. It's very simple, isn't it? Well, you know, God saved you when you were a wretch. Is he going to forsake you now? No way. That's the point. God has already done the hardest part, if you will. You think he's not going to do the easier part? Paul did that. He spent this time, just a couple of verses, so it would make a difference in your life. As I said, today, as you look toward the end, as you look back at your being justified and reconciled to Him, and as you look forward to the certain glory that's coming to you as a child of God, so that it would make a difference in your life. We rejoice now, present tense, verse 11. His goal is to make you and me glory, boast, rejoice all the time. Even as we read in verses 2 and 3 in the midst of tribulation. These are very elementary truths. But here is the thing you cannot miss. It is fixing our minds once again. And I should say again and again. And again, on these truths that will find us always rejoicing. One biographer of William Cooper, the hymn writer, Cowper—you might pronounce it—he said, "This biographer did about Cooper. Cooper, Cooper um, was very depressed all through his whole life, even after he became a Christian, and." Um, to the point that before he was converted, he spent time in an insane asylum. I understand that that is not the way to say it nowadays, but I'm just saying that's what it was back in the 1800s, 1700s. So he was in this place, and he was at wit's end, but, but there he was reminded of the gospel that he had heard as a young man. And this biographer pointed out that it was the scriptural message of the love of God and the cross of Christ that God used to convert him when he was in that insane asylum in 1763. That's what God used to bring him hope and even life. And Cooper wrote this in one of the hymns that we sing. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming life has been my theme and shall be till I die. What enabled even what the Puritans would call a melancholy, a sad man like William Cooper to rejoice as a Christian on the difficult days, what, what, what could do that? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's these, it's these truths we've heard again today. And so I want to close by commending to you that you make those things your theme and do it all the more in the days of affliction. Don't think, I need a break like, you know, watching a baseball game or eating a bowl of ice cream to get my mind off of these troubles I have. Now, if that works for you, great. But let me just say, it's never going to work like these great gospel truths. Think of Paul's words in Philippians 4. Think on those things, brethren, that are noble and true and just and all those things. And do you not think, believer, that if you kept such truths before your mind and meditated on them more, you would be rejoicing more, even in affliction. Well, may God help us to do so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would take the things we've heard today and write them on our hearts. Lord, we do believe. Help our unbelief. And help us to believe in the truth of the gospel. And if you have saved us, Father, cause that love that was already shed abroad in our hearts to more and more fill our hearts to the point that our hearts are taken up with it even in our darkest of days, and that we are thrilled with it, and that even at the depths of our discouragement and trials, we will rejoice in hope of the glory of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.